welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I'm here with Natalie. Natalie, great to be with you. You too, Raph. Nice to be here. Mm. We're going to talk about uh, exercise and pregnancy, or more specifically, Pilates and pregnancy. I like how you phrased it. I thought you were going to say we're going to talk about prenatal Pilates, which then I would say another word for that would be Pilates. Pilates. Prenatal Pilates, also known as Pilates. Yeah. Um, And we've talked about uh, Pilates for pregnancy before. And I guess uh, what I what I think we're going to talk about today is just a really concise set of uh, do's and don'ts for um, your pregnant women when they're in your Pilates class. Is is that what we're here for? Yeah, that sounds reasonable enough. I think we can handle it. That's our learning okay. goal for today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. So why are we having this conversation today, given that we've covered this topic or areas of this topic a couple of times before on the podcast? We're having this conversation because this conversation needs to be had. I, I think that for as many times as we've talked about it, we're still going to have to continue to keep spreading the word about fearless movement when it comes to uh, pregnant clients because there's still so many, what do I want to say? There's so many people and media outlets and information out there that say otherwise. In fact, Mm. um, I was doing a little bit of Google research before we met up and I came across the website of a popular Pilates subscription. I'm not going to name names, but just think of a popular Pilates subscription that has um, many recordings of Pilates classes. And there's an article. Can you watch them anytime? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and the first thing I want to say is this article is still on the web and it was published in 2018. So maybe. Maybe things have updated. And I did a tiny bit of searching to see if they had any more updates to this article, but there isn't. I didn't see any. And I would be, if anyone from that company is listening to this and knows who we're talking about, although, then maybe although we I we don't I, know which company we're talking about. It's no, no, no. It's true. Anyway, but October 23, 2018, there is an article uh, by said. Pilates website called Trimester by Trimester Guide to Prenatal Pilates. And some of it I think is reasonable. Like they say things like, don't put your client um, on her back for a long period of time, or don't put the client on her stomach for a long period of time. That's reasonable. At a certain point, you shouldn't be doing that. But there, there's just so many other things that I think if you're not aware of the guidelines for prenatal exercise, you're going to read this and think, oh, not only is this reasonable, but um, I have to be very, very careful with my prenatal clients. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. things like um, go back to basics. Now is a good time to focus on your Pilates foundations, especially when it comes to breathing and stabilization. 
Be mm. moderate with your spring choices. If you choose to do reformer Pilates during pregnancy, work with a heavier spring for stability exercises. If you're doing leg or arm work, go lighter. So there's a general, I think this is um, symptomatic of the general zeitgeist in, in the Pilates world and probably in the fitness world as well, uh, to be fair, that pregnancy is a time of danger and we must be careful and safe and that safety is more important than anything in in during pregnancy and i guess i want to uh say that by and large i think all of those statements have truth in them like we should be more concerned with safety during pregnancy than outside of pregnancy and pregnant women are more vulnerable to certain things than non-pregnant women. Uh, and so safety is important. But I think what is missing from those ideas are two things. One is just an, an understanding of what is safe and what is not safe. And secondly, an understanding of the 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 true nature of trade-offs that occur when you maximize safety, right? So if we, if we like, because you would think like, okay, well, safer is better, right? Like if you could be more safe or less safe, wouldn't you rather be more safe? And it's like, okay, on the face of it, yes, I'd rather be more safe, right? But it's dangerous to step outside your front door. I mean, there could be a tornado, a lightning strike, could be run over by a bicycle, you know, slip on a banana peel. So the only way to be truly safe would be to be uh, locked in a flotation tank with oxygen supplied and, uh, you know, food supplied through an intravenous drip uh, with, you know, and, and so that would be a pretty horrible life, be very restrictive, but there'd be zero chance of slipping on a banana peel or being run over by a bicycle. So there is, and that now obviously that's an extreme example, but the, the point is that there are trade-offs, right? In order to increase safety, like if you don't want to get run over by a bicycle, well, don't go on the streets, right? Well, that's fine, but there's a cost to not going on the street. Well, what if I want to go visit a friend? What if I want to go buy some groceries, you know? Um, so there's a cost to that safety. And so the, 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 I think the true question is not like, should we promote safety? Well, of course we should. The question is, what is the right balance between safety and freedom when it comes to pregnant clients in Pilates? And so, you know, if we wanted the, to be 100% certain a, a pregnant woman never gets injured in Pilates, well, just don't do Pilates, right? Bam, 100% certainty, never get injured. But it's like, all right, well, but then you're also losing all of the benefits of doing Pilates. So there are costs to not doing Pilates, like more chance of lots of pregnancy-related illnesses and non-pregnancy-related illnesses. Uh, and so by increasing safety in one area, we increase risk and potential harm in another area. So it's it's there's no such thing as a perfect solution. There are only trade-offs. And so what is the trade-off that we're prepared to make in relation to 
you know, the the acknowledged increased risks in some areas in pregnancy, what's the right level of trade-off is the right question, not like how can we reduce the risk to zero because the only way to do that is to imprison people, essentially. So so first I think uh, we should talk about like what are the what are the risk the real risks, um, increased risks during pregnancy. And second, like what what's a reasonable level of trade-off? Or in other words, and it's like, and it's not our, it's not really our view on what's a reasonable level of trade-off. It's like, okay, what does the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists consider to be the right level of trade-off? Um, you know, in other words, what are the guidelines? Yeah, what are the guidelines? Well, and just just so that we're clear, we're talking about healthy pregnant people. Not we're not talking about high risk pregnant women who are being closely monitored by their doctors because they have serious medical conditions either from pregnancy or before pregnancy. We're just talking about everyday women, women and pregnant clients who come in to the Pilates studio because they want to move their bodies. Yeah. And speak, speak, yeah, I think that's, that's important because often uh, edge cases can get brought into these conversations and we can say, oh, well, it's perfectly safe for you know pregnant women to do X, Y, or Z. And someone can say, oh, but what about someone who's got no arms and legs and lives in a box? And, you know, it's like, yeah, we're not talking about that person. We're talking about just regular, you know, mums-to-be who have no particular major health concerns um, and just want to have a happy, healthy pregnancy. But I will say that as speaking as an exercise, clinical exercise physiologist, uh, Women with what are considered high-risk pregnancies, so women with like gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension or you know pre-existing you know, uh, gestational uh, with um, you know morbid obesity, pre-gestational um, things like that, they should still exercise, but they should just do it under the supervision of a degree-qualified allied healthcare professional. But they're, they're going to be doing the same things that we're talking about. Right? The things, the things are not different. You just have to have like a, a defibrillator handy on the wall, you know, whilst you're doing it. That's the only difference, really. Right. Because the risk of not moving is so much worse than the risk of moving. Right. And so even for somebody with preeclampsia, with uh, gestational hypertension, which is a precursor to preeclampsia in, in some cases, uh, exercise during pregnancy reduces the risk of preeclampsia. So even for people at risk of conditions or with the condition, exercise either doesn't make it worse or makes it better. So um yeah, so for people for people with pre-existing conditions if they're on the high risk list uh 100% uh they shouldn't be in your group pilates class or in fact they probably shouldn't even be coming to pilates they should be working with an exercise physiologist or an obstetrician gynecologist for their exercise um but uh for everybody who is um you know basically cleared to exercise which is going to be like 98% of women during the pregnancy, uh, these guidelines apply. So, um, right. Shall we talk about the guidelines? Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so which guidelines, which guidelines are we going to talk about? Oh, let's, let's go with um, our old friend, the ACOG guidelines. Uh, and are they substantially different to other guidelines? Mm-mm. Not substantially, no. There are a couple of minor differences, but um, basically they're they're all the same. So if you look at the ACSM guidelines or the NICE guidelines in the UK, uh, they're basically the same. 
you know, a few minor uh, differences in degree, but not in kind. All right. So uh, the, the guidelines, what are they? To summarize, there are four main ones. The first guideline is to avoid prolonged supine after 20 weeks of gestation. The second is to avoid blunt trauma. The third is to avoid overheating. And the fourth is to just take into consideration comfort for your pregnant client. That's it. Should I, should I take into consideration comfort for my non-pregnant clients as well? Or is that only for pregnant clients? I, I mean, if that's your style and you want to, I, well, let me just say this. I don't think exercise should be comfortable. Um, it's Agreed. not necessarily comfortable, but for pregnant clients who are just typically more sensitive and maybe tired or stressed because they're going to have another baby, all of those things, their, uh, their sensation of pain is probably heightened. And so, yep. you know, if in my mind, if you have a heavily pregnant client coming in and she was able to get herself to the studio and that's all she wanted to do was sit on the long box while everybody else does something, great. If that's what you want to do today, awesome. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's 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 what I mean by comfort. But also, you know, um, for your non-pregnant clients who want to be comfortable, they're comfortable is such a relative term because people have degrees of comfort and need for comfort. All right. So let's go through those one by one. So the first one is avoid prolonged exercise in the supine position from 20 weeks of gestation. So that's sort of like you know, midway through pregnancy. It's like halfway through trimester two. And uh, so this is where the, the ACOG guidelines do differ somewhat from ACSM or the NICE guidelines, because the ACSM, I think, is like 15 weeks from memory that they say. I think it's 15 prolonged. or 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. Um, so, but anyways, like they both agree that from about somewhere in second trimester, you should avoid prolonged supine exercise. The only difference is like, okay, ACSM says week whatever, 15, 13, whatever, and ACOG says week 20. All right, so we all agree that by week 20, we should be avoiding prolonged supine, right? So I think that's, you know, if we squint and look at, you know, stand back, they're basically the same guideline there. So uh, what is, you know, what is, firstly, what is prolonged? What does prolonged mean? You know, that's a great question. (laughs) Uh, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a consensus on that. I feel like I've scanned through that ACOG paper multiple times and I don't know that that there is a a definitive answer about what what prolonged means. I think it's a really lame guideline. I think the the role of guidelines is to give specific guidance. And this guidelines cops out. And the AC to be fair, the ACSM one and the nice ones do the same thing. None of them specify a particular amount of time. So is is 30 seconds prolonged? 60 seconds, five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour? Like, like what is prolonged? <laughs> um, and I think they cop out there and deliberately don't give a specific amount of time because they don't know what the amount of time is that um, is going to be uh, detrimental. 
So uh, they're basically saying, you know, we're just using a, a nebulous term like prolonged, like vague and ill-defined term, like like prolonged, because then if there's a problem, we can say, well, we told you not to do it. Right? <laughs> you spent four seconds in the supine position. We told you not to do that. You know, clearly it says don't spend a prolonged position in super, uh, time in supine. Uh, whereas uh, it really sort of puts all of the the legal, you know, onus on the on the practitioner. But I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I would just say it's like, well, that is a lame guideline. How do you follow a guideline that says, pro, you know, prolonged? So and for myself, you know, I've just interpreted that as about a minute. You know, um, I I, th- I think you could make a pretty good argument that less than a minute is not prolonged. Um, although it is still sort of subjective. Like, yeah, how do you interpret that? Yeah, I I don't. Um, what I tell our students is, you know, just if, you, if you're going to do ab series or if you're going to do footwork, just prop them. Um, the, the one exception I would have is if you were setting up for, let's say, a bridge where you're lying on your back and your knees are bent and, you know, get them into that position and just have them start bridging. I haven't defined it just because and our team thinks about this all the time. Our training team thinks about like what does prolonged mean, and and I think you're right. There's there's no definition because I also think that it really depends on the person, you know. So, um, I can only speak from my own experience, but I'm a small person and I had normal sized babies, and with both of my pregnancies, I was, I would feel, um, I would start to feel faint from even just in a reclined position for a couple of minutes. Like there was so much pressure um, on my blood flow from even being in a propped position, but I could feel it coming on. So I knew when I was going to pass out, um, just not having enough blood flow. So I was always vocal about, you know, if I were, if I was going into um, my doctor's appointments, and they would have me lie down so that I they could do their exam. And I could say, like, oh, I'm beginning to feel a little tingly in my head. <laughs> like, and then they would be like, okay. And they just roll me over to the side, get some more blood, and then they'd roll me back on my back. And, you know, so I think it just depends. And I it, it, in my memory, and my kids are old now, but in my memory, it just took a couple of minutes for me to just feel like, oh, the darkness is coming in. I'm about to pass out. Um, not enough blood. I sometimes feel like when I stand up quickly. Oh yeah. 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 That happens to me too. Um, so yeah, I don't, there's, there's no, I don't think, I don't think we can define it. I think mm. it's just, I mean, with this guideline, we're just going to make sure that if we're going to have our class lie down, just, just prop your pregnant client. I think uh, it's a really good rule of thumb. What you said is let's just not do supine after 20 weeks of gestation, you know, like why not make it simple, right? If, so if we just don't do supine, well, then we're definitely not doing prolonged supine. So that's easy. We're hundred percent coloring within the lines then. You know, I love that you said that because, um, if you create a class program that is good for everybody, including your prenatal clients, that is such a really great teaching strategy so that if at any point you have a pregnant client walk in, there's nothing you need to think about because the program that you're about to teach is good for everybody. 
that's a really great teaching hack right there is to create class programs that um that are good for everybody including your prenatal clients right okay so like you said we can do things like bridge or a shoulder you know, like a shoulder bridge basically where the hips are raised and we can do things where we're kind of seated and semi reclining where the shoulders are raised but we just can't lie flat on our back and so we can though like for example touch our butt on the mat you know for a second in between reps of shoulder bridge right that's certainly not prolonged um so you know so that's kind of like a i think uh, there we can be fairly precise in terms of the the exercises of around the periphery of supine it's like just it's just actual supine that is a problem um and like you said like if you if you're programming a class the way that we've talked about you know on this on this podcast before i've done i've got a couple of podcasts with heath where we've talked about uh what we call it breathe out loud teaching framework where you're basically teaching based around body positions and you teach clusters of exercises in a given body position and then move on to a new body position and by the time you do a few body positions if you're a bit strategic about which body positions you use you've worked the whole body in all directions uh, and so if if you think about programming in this way and you think about, okay, what are the exercises I can do, for example, kneeling? What are the exercises I can do sideline? You know, each of those is a body position. What are the exercises I can do standing? Uh, what are the exercises I could do prone? What are the exercises I could do, you know, seated? And then obviously supine is one of those positions. And if you just program your classes and you've got a whole list of exercises you can do, maybe you've got half a dozen exercises you can do in in kneeling and half a dozen exercises you can do in side lying and half a dozen exercises you can do in standing, etc. And then if you just go, okay, I'm just going to assemble those lists of exercises as building blocks into a class. So I just go, okay, I'll do my standing sequence followed by my kneeling sequence, followed by my side lying sequence, bada bing, bada boom, there's 18 exercises, there's my class, right? Um, and if you then go, okay, and Tomorrow, I'm going to teach basically the same class, but I'm going to take out the sideline sequence and put in a prone sequence and work the back more, you know. And then the next day, I'll take out the kneeling sequence and put in a supine sequence, you know. And so you can basically, there's your, there's your class programming right there. And so what you're saying is to make your class pregnancy friendly, basically all you do is leave out the supine sequence. And, and prone. Late, and prone late in pregnancy. <laughs> That's it. I'm getting so excited because I love talking about class programming. It's my favorite. Um, but yeah, it's, well, and it's, you know, you were saying if you have a half a dozen exercises, well, maybe if you have a half dozen exercises or maybe you have three exercises, but you've layered them in such a way that you prolonged one exercise, right? So that an exercise lasts about two to three minutes, depending. Um, so what do you mean by layering? What I mean by layering, Sure. So let's do, um, I'm going to give you two examples. One would be, um, let's do front rowing seated. You could do it seated on the bed or you could do it seated on a box. So front rowing is a great layering exercise. And by layering, I mean starting off with a very easy version of the exercise, one simple step or two simple steps, and then you're building progressively towards the fullest expression of the exercise. And, um, 
front rowing is an exercise. We'll use front rowing sitting tall, for instance. Multiple choreographical steps, you know, where you start in T-Rex arms, you press the straps out to 45 degrees, you bring the straps down to the floor, up to the sky, circle wide, right? So you could layer that exercise. So you know it, you remember it. Um, and you can hear Natalie smiling if you're not watching us on YouTube because um, we're doing the T-Rex arms. Yeah, we're and doing the whole we're doing it together. together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're doing it together. Um, yeah, but you can then rather than teaching the whole exercises and exercise in one go, you break it up into smaller choreographical pieces, and maybe you start off with just T-Rex arms to pressing out to 45, and just keep doing that for a little bit, and then you'll add on the second layer, which is to bring the straps down to the sky. And then come back to your start position and then you add, you know, the rest. But if you were to teach the exercise in its fullest expression, first of all, that's a lot of words. And your, your I was going to say your kids, your clients are not going to get it right away if they have never done it before. But if you're able to build it up bit by bit and add, add one or two choreographical steps, it prolongs the exercise and it also gives the clients a chance to kind of digest each step. And then all of a sudden, they're doing the fullest expression of the exercise. So if you take that exercise and it's seated or sitting on a box facing the foot bar, if you take that exercise and then maybe you do a couple more exercises, you've been doing something, you know, for a good six to eight minutes, maybe more. And then you get you gas them out in their arms and it's like, let's forget about your arms and do something else. Change a body position, change the exercise. I'm just... This is the mm. stuff. I just love this stuff. So teach us through like not, a, not all of the layers, but just a couple of layers of front rowing. Okay. Front yeah. rowing, sitting tall. Yeah. Just what okay. you described. Just all maybe right. the first two layers. Okay. So sitting tall, you're going to start in a seated position. You can either be sitting crisscross or your legs are long on the bed. Let's start with your arms or your straps at T-Rex, T-Rex arms. You're going to press the straps out to 45, bring the straps back in. Again, press the straps out to 45, bring it back in one more time. And through the medium of radio, uh, Natalie's also doing a visual demonstration. I'm hand dancing. Arms. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm hand dancing. Yes, one more time. All right, I'm going to add on if you're ready. The next time, you're going to press the straps to 45, then you're going to bring the straps down to the floor. Bring the straps back up to 45. Come back to your start position. Let's try that again. Bring your straps to 45, down to the floor, back up to 45. Wrap, it's like you've been doing this all the time. I think you're ready for the next one. You ready? Straps to 45, down to the floor, up to the sky, circle home. And congratulations, you did it all the front rowing. Let's do it again. Straps to 45, down to the floor, up to the sky, circle wide. Yay, you did it. That was the whole exercise. <laughs> so, and you'd teach that a little bit, like you'd you'd spend a few more reps. You'd more, spend more time on each each layer, right? I would. So we'd just, we'd just do the T-Rex arms to 45 degrees, you know, for a minute or so maybe. Yeah, I would. I mean, and you know, it's, that's a, in terms of timing and how much time do you spend in each layer, our team, we can spend hours <laughs> talking about the timing. We'll have to do another podcast on, on timing uh, um, just because it's such a personal, it's such a personal thing. 
Um, and it also has to do with the people in front of you. So if I have a whole bunch of beginner clients or if I have a bunch of um, clients who might be deconditioned, a minute might be too long. So you just got to pay attention to the people in front of you to make a smart choice about when to move on to the next layer. And when they start basically like shrugging their shoulders, side bending, frowning, scowling, stopping. Well, by the time they start stopping, like you've left it too long. Yeah. If they've stopped, you've killed them. Yeah. (laughs) But if they start to get quiet or if their form starts to get really wobbly and shaky, then yeah, you're pushing, you're pushing it. (laughs) Yep. All right. And so we can construct a class by starting with body positions, you know, seated, kneeling, side-lying, standing, supine, prone. And, you know, when you're on the reformer, you can add more body positions like seated facing the foot bar, seated facing the pulleys, seated facing the side, um, standing next to the reformer, standing on the reformer, you know, prone on the box, prone in a plank. Um, so yeah, so there are, there are more options, even more options on the reformer, but we can program by body positions and then just come up with a list of exercises somewhere between like three and six exercises per body position. And you can then layer each of those exercises, which just means start with an easy peasy, peasy, peasy version that you're certain that everyone in the group can manage and then add gradually add on harder layers you know so it might be that we add on challenge by making it more complex like we did with the front rowing or we might just add more range of motion or we might add more load by you know lifting your knees up off the carriage in a plank or whatever Um, and so we just keep adding layers until we get to a point where everybody's being challenged uh, and people can get off the bus at whatever stop you know they can stick with whatever layer works for them uh, and that way you get to program a class based on body positions. And if you've done some, you know, uh, kneeling facing the pulleys and some kneeling facing the foot bar, we've done the front muscles and the back muscles. Yeah. And if you've done some kneeling facing the side, then you've done the side muscles as well. So you've pretty much cooked the chicken on all sides of the rotisserie. Uh, the rotisserie is rotated around. We've cooked the chicken on all sides. Uh, and so then we've given that person uh, a balanced workout in terms of front, back, and sides. Now, we also still have to do some legs and whatnot, but you know, if we basically do what we call 360 programming, where you basically face in all directions, then you've done all of the muscles because gravity always points downwards. So if you're facing downwards, you're doing your back muscles. If you're facing upwards, you're doing front muscles generally. Um, and if you're facing sideways, you're doing your side muscles. So, all right, so we can program in terms of body positions and in order to program a prenatal friendly class all you need to do is leave out the prone and supine so for instance if your absolute favorite program in the whole world includes footwork supine just do sideline footwork so one of the things that um a common cluster that we share with the breathe students is uh, sideline footwork on one side, do all of the things that you want to do in that sideline position. Try to keep them there for a while so that it's worth their while being in that position. Um, changing When we come to changing position, it becomes consideration number four, which is the comfort. And if you're, you know, 35 weeks and as big as a house, it's like you don't want to be switching position in between every 10 reps. 
switching position. Or for instance, if you, let's say, let me, let me put a parenthesis into what I was saying. Let's say you wanted to do your, your awesome supine cluster and your choice is then to prop your client. Yeah. So let's say we wanted to do a supine cluster that included, this is on the reformer. I'm thinking of the reformer, the hundred, um, maybe feet in straps, maybe some footwork, those kinds of things. And, you know, the, in the spirit of creating a cluster based on a body position, we're going to try to maximize the time in that position. So think of a bunch of exercises that you could do both upper body, lower body, maybe using the foot bar, maybe using the straps. If you decide you wanted to go ahead with your super duper favorite supine cluster and you, you say to yourself, okay, I'm just going to have my prenatal client prop. I'm going to put in a wedge or a prop and the prenatal, prenatal client's just going to do what everybody else is doing in class, but just propped. One of the things that we always talk to our students about is fine. That's not a, that's not a wrong choice, but that there is a trade off to that, which is every time, uh, well, first of all, if you've ever done First of a all, fighting straps sucks when you're That's propped, right. right. That's exactly what I was going to say. Feet and straps, you should try it. And this is where empathy comes in. If you're going to have your clients do it, try it. If you are going to have your prenatal client do it, stick a ball under your t-shirt, put a prop behind you, try getting your feet into the straps. It's not that hard. I mean, it's not that easy and it's not very comfortable. No, and then the straps rub on your shoulders and like it's, and the straps pull your legs down. It's like, it's just bloody horrible. It goes from being like my favorite all-time exercise to like, no, this sucks. Get me out of here. Yes. And you won't know until you try it. So that's really important. So some of it is logistical. So uh, another example of this is uh, imagine doing supine footwork for a bunch of, um, for a bunch, and then maybe you want to do bridges. Right. So and we've already said that bridge is not a prolonged supine position. But if you're a prenatal client, you're going to do five minutes of footwork. Then you're going to take the prop out, lie on your back to do some bridges. And then your teacher says, OK, now it's time for footwork again. Put the prop back in. Or now it's time do for some- hundreds or feeding straps or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. And so this idea of like taking the prop out, putting it back in, taking it out. I mean, it's just it becomes a logistical nightmare. And this to me is like a cardinal sin of programming, which is all of these unnecessary transitions that eat up time, you know, where you're- and It's just you're, unnecessary complication. What offends me uh-huh. about it is just the, the, the complexity, the unnecessary complexity of adding a prop to make a position that we don't even need to do. It's like we could just do that same sequence in sideline and just leave the whole prop aside and like literally no modifications at all. The pregnant woman just does the exact same exercise as everybody else and everybody else is going, oh, this is an awesome butt workout and thigh workout and whatever. And they're not, you're not saying, hey, everyone, let's do this like prenatal Pilates exercise special. It's like, no, it's just a Pilates exercise. It's just an exercise that you would do with anyone in a Pilates class. It just happens to be good for prenatal women as well. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's the end of our show. <laughs> um, so, all right. So talk us through this sideline cluster that we could do, which is a cluster, again, is just a, a series of exercises you do in the same, in the same body position. 
you know, three to six exercises, depending on how many layers you do for each exercise. So you start with the easy peasy peasy version, then do a harder version, harder version, harder version until everyone's like, oh, that's hard enough. Thanks. And then you go, okay, great. Five more, please. And then you go, okay, let's do the next exercise in this body position. So we might go sideline footwork, right? Toes forward, toes back, toes up, toes down, knees up, knees down, whatever it might be. Some pulses some whatever's you, you do there. And then we might do like a side-lying leg and strap, maybe. Would you do Yeah. Or even a side-lying hand and strap, depending on mm. whether or not the clients can handle the, the spring tension. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, you could even just like put the straps down and do some side leg lifts and leg circles and things like that. Um, yeah. Like there's, there's limited only by your imagination. You could, you know, depending on the dimensions of your reformer and so on and whether it's padded etc you could do a an, an, a side plank you know prop yourself up on your elbow feet on the on the platform you know so lots and lots of things you can you can do in that situation uh, and so you would just do that sequence and then obviously flip over and do the other side instead I would do something the, between that the supine sequence all right so what would you do in between like a kneeling sequence of some kind I love doing things in the middle before switching to the other sides. Depending on the on the client and the client's comfort, I might consider doing either having them go supine and doing bridges in between, putting the feet on the foot bar or putting the feet on the plat- platform and just getting into some bridges. And really, it's just a moment in time where we can do something. We're doing a quarter turn, right? So you go from one sideline side do a quarter turn on your back, go right into some bridges if you feel like that that works. I mean, otherwise, we could do a seated sequence, you know, where we're just doing front rowing and do a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. That's This is my own teaching style. Like, if I, if I didn't do supine and I had them in seated or even having them seated towards the pulleys, I'd do it for a long time. Yeah. Find create another cluster. And then I would turn them over to the other side. Because part of my goal in having smooth, quick, and seamless transitions is to do quarter turns for Matt or Reformer. Just try to do a quarter turn. It should be really mm. easy. And that's just my challenge. That's something that I like to do for myself. You know, I, I, I love the smoothness of that, but I've always struggled when I do that to remember to do the other side. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. And then, you know, at the end of the class, the clients are going like, oh, we never did the right side. I'm like, ah. Oh, they, no, 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 no. Clients, if your teacher doesn't do the other side, shout, wave your hands. Don't wait till the end. This is a partnership. Don't wait till the end. Uh, Invariably, I always forget. I, I mean, it's just so very common, but, you know, Empower your clients to correct you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Or write it on the back of your hand or something. Yeah. Um, uh, or put it, stick a sign up on the wall to yourself. So when you turn to face the front, it says, don't forget to do the other side. <laughs> um, all right. So we're programming by body. If we program by body position, and if we think about constructing a program by body position, rather than thinking about individual exercises, like when you're writing a program, rather than thinking about, oh, I'll do footwork. Oh, what will I do next? Oh, I could do arms in straps or whatever. Think about, I'm going to do supine. Ah, what if a few exercises I could do in supine? Bam, 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 bam. All right. Where would be good to go after supine? Oh, I could move to sideline. All right. What are some exercises in sideline? 
bam, 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 bam. All right. Oh, what after there? Well, I could go to standing. Okay. What are some exercises I could do in standing? Dun, 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 dun. Um, and so then when you're programming a pregnancy-friendly class, all you do is literally leave out the supine and prone exercises. And if you just leave them out and do everything else exactly as written with one little asterisk, which is avoid situations or exercises where there's a high risk of the woman falling or overbalancing. So like don't stand on wobbly things. Um, whether the wobbly thing is a BOSU or whether the wobbly thing is a reformer carriage on a light spring. Uh, or a BOSU on a reformer, because you know, that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of the trend right now. We have to call call out the elephant in the room. They don't cancel each other out. No, I mean, according to Instagram, no. All right, yeah, and definitely not a BOSU on a reformer carriage on a light spring. Um, so if we literally just leave out the supine and prone sequences and also leave out or modify, which we'll talk about in a minute, any exercises that involve standing on wobbly things or kneeling on wobbly things or you know, whatever it might whatever it might be. So basically balancing on wobbly things. Uh, then we're totally pregnancy safe. And we can just literally program any of the Pilates exercises and we're good to go. Yeah. Seems too good to be true. Oh, I know. I mean, I think it is because, you know, there's, we're, we're having this conversation. So uh, uh, we have to have this conversation because there's, there's still a lot of belief out there that it's too good to be true. But I like uh, what you said. I like what you said about um, the balance considerations. You know, you said all you need to do is leave out supine and prolonged supine and prone. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, and also standing on the reformer and high kneeling on the reformer, but then you read my mind and you said it, which leads us to the next guideline, mm -hmm. uh, which is to avoid blunt trauma. Yeah. So, sorry, just before we go there, I just want to finish up on the prone thing, which is actually not a guideline. Uh, so it doesn't say anywhere in ACOG or ACSM that women should avoid prone exercise at any point during pregnancy. Um, but it's just plain common sense. When you are in third trimester, you don't want to lie on your tummy, right? That's blindingly obvious yeah, to almost everybody, I would say. So it's not a guideline. And so if somebody's in first trimester and they're not even showing yet and they feel fine doing swimming, it's like there's no problem with them doing prone work, right? But at some point, that woman is just going to become uncomfortable. They just won't want to lie on their belly, right? And so that's where the, the comfort thing comes in. It's like, okay, well, if you don't want to lie on your belly, don't lie on your belly. So so if we just, again, you know, we, we accept that, okay, for some women, it's going to be totally fine. And for most women, it's going to be totally fine at the start of pregnancy. And for all women, at some point, they're going to be like, yeah, no, I don't want to lie prone anymore. Well, if we just say, okay, we just won't do any prone exercise in this particular session, well, then we just know this, like, well, it doesn't matter who walks in, what stage of pregnancy they're at, we'll be fine, right? But it's not a blanket statement saying no pregnant woman should ever do any prone exercise. It's like if someone's like 10 weeks pregnant and they feel fine doing prone, that's fine, right? But yeah. Just it's just it's just a, like a rule of thumb for you to program, 
that if you just wanted to like keep it really simple in your programming choices and just go, okay, I'm going to create a pregnancy-friendly class where I can accommodate someone who's in first, second, or third trimester, someone who's, you know, very uncomfortable or someone who's been super experienced in their practice and been practicing Pilates for years and is high level and wants to keep practicing at a high level. I can accommodate all of those people without even thinking about it. Just leave out the supine and prone and do everything else, but don't stand on wobbly things. That's true. Um, I do want to say, though, thinking about prone exercises that our friend and colleague Haley Hawkins, um, you know, she was doing her version, a beautiful version of Swan on the Long Box, literally like five minutes before she gave birth to Hamish. And, you know, she's a Pilates professional. She, um, this is probably not something that I would teach to Don't the try general this public. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't do this with the general public, but, you know, she's a Pilates professional and she's amazing at Pilates. And she was able to curate her own practice when she was very, very pregnant. And she did a gorgeous job of it. And, you know, what I remember Haley saying is that she was putting up these reels of herself practicing very pregnant on Instagram and she was getting a lot of flack for it. And I'm thinking she's a Pilates professional. The last thing she's going to do is hurt her baby. And she's 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 doing what she needs to do to make it work and so that would be the one caveat right it's just like there are people who can make things work for themselves based on their own comfort and their own bodies and um Haley's swan on long box is just agreed and I, I I'm with you in in your admiration of of Haley's practice she's incredible um and I think, you know, what that's a really good point because what we're discussing here, it's actually a broader point that what we're discussing here is what to do as a Pilates professional, right? And so you've got a duty of care. Uh, and so what we have to do as Pilates professionals, as movement professionals, is is do what a reasonable person would do, you know, given the average client. So we're going to, you know, involve the minimal risk for the maximal number of clients, right? So basically this is, this is a... This is a paint by numbers. You know, that's what a guideline is, right? Um, and there are women who, you know, sleep on their back all through their pregnancy with perfect comfort, perfect safety, have healthy babies, not a problem. And that's fine. So obviously it's not the case that, you know, every pregnant woman is going to explode if they lie on their back for more than 60 seconds, right? Some, some women are totally fine. And some women are not. They they black out if they lie semi-reclining for 60 seconds in the gynecologist's office. Right? Um, so as a movement professional, the thing is, it's that's not our call to make. We just have to say, okay, to be on the safe side, we're just not going to do prolonged supine, right? But for individuals at home, they get to make their own choices. And, and you know, likewise for Haley, you know, doing prone swan dive in the long walks. And Folks at home, she wasn't like resting on her belly button, you know, on the long box. She's actually just inched forwards on the long box a little bit so that she was, you know, her belly was off the edge of the long box. And so it's totally safe and fine. Um, but, you know, your clients may or may not feel comfortable doing that. And that's totally individual, right? But so I think you know, where the blanket recommendations come in, in these guidelines is it's like, we want to make sure as many people as possible are as safe as possible. So if we just say no supine, well, that means everybody's going to, you know, nobody's going to black out, right? 
Whereas if we start saying, okay, some people can do supine and some people can't do supine, well, then there's going to inevitably there'll be a gray areas and confusion and we'll get it wrong sometimes and some people will black out, right? So so these rules are just rules that that uh, we're obliged by duty of care, by our duty of care to, to do when we're working with a group of people and just go, okay, look, we're just going to keep on a you know, statistical basis, everybody's safe here by just not doing supine, right? But if you want to sleep on your back all night in trimester three and you're totally fine with that, well, that's that's awesome. That's that's great. Yeah, that's your business. On to, so on to uh, avoid blunt what? trauma. So, do, I mean, do you normally like promote blunt trauma for your regular Pilates clients who aren't pregnant? Do I just carry a bat around the Pilates yeah. studio and just whack people? Or just encourage people to like, I don't know, jump off the reformer and land on their, on their head on the floor or something like that. Do you, do you recommend that? No. And you know, this, the whole idea of um, avoid blunt trauma, if we're talking about Pilates in specific, uh, uh, the blunt trauma oftentimes will come from tripping and falling, right? Balance challenges, tripping and falling. And so the first order of business is making sure that the area around your clients, all clients, not just your prenatal clients, but all clients is to make sure there are no tripping hazards. I have lots of clients who leave their shoes out front, but then they bring their water bottle and their keys and their phone and their coat and all that. And they just lay it around. And I have to remind them, you know, like you have to tuck all that stuff in because you're going to fall down. And if you're playing with props and everyone's got a magic circle and a foam roller and three flex bands and two toning balls and a foam block and a cushion. That's right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. If that's your style, then you got to be extra careful because you've got extra stuff. Need a little basket for that stuff and it needs to live in the basket when it's not in, in hand. Yep. In the basket, under the bed, just get it out of the way. So that's another thing. Um, but speci specifically for uh, our prenatal clients, we want to make sure that they don't fall on their baby. So that's really what that's about. If anybody falls, that's bad news. But when you have a person who has a baby, then you don't want them to hurt two people, not just one. And in, I mean, in the ACOG guidelines, when they talk about this, so the ACOG guidelines, they're general guidelines for physical activity during pregnancy. Now, physical activity is a broader category than exercise. Exercise is described as structured movement for the purpose of improving fitness, right? So that is like going to a Pilates class or going to a Zumba class or you know something like that. Whereas physical activity could just be like doing the gardening or going for a walk with the dog or you know whatever it might be. Uh, and so physical activity is a broader category of things that includes things like playing ball sports, going abseiling, you know, doing parachuting, going scuba diving, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the ACOG guidelines have to encompass all of those activities and the examples that they give are all related to things like, well, don't play ball sports where someone's going to kick a soccer ball and potentially hit you in the tummy, right? Don't do... In, don't do contact sports like boxing or you know martial arts you know so they're not thinking about a pilates studio when they say avoid blunt trauma they're thinking about you know people doing highly vigorous impact you know team sports sometimes um you know avoid like abseiling where you might fall <laughs> so uh, in a pilates class it's pretty darn safe and people don't go around whacking each other generally um, but we can still uh, 
remove a significant portion of falls. It's really falls, like you say, that's the risk. Uh, we remove a significant promotion of that risk by just not standing on wobbly things and not leaving crap lying on the floor. Yeah, for sure. Well, on wobbly things, let's talk about that a little bit. So one would be, um, you know, side splits, standing on the moving bed. Uh, one of the things, I think it was Haley, actually Haley Hawkins, who brought it up, and it's kind of a nice rule of thumb, is when you have a prenatal client, you want to ensure that when they're on the bed, they have three points of contact, uh, at least three points of contact. So what that would look like, for instance, is let's say you were on a on the reformer in quadruped, maybe, if you were going to do a if you were on a really light spring, maybe just doing an arm or a leg as opposed to an arm and a leg so that you always have the ability to be steady. So I think the exercises that come to mind, let's list out those exercises because the ones that come to mind for me, obviously side splits on a reformer on a light spring, front splits on a reformer on a light spring, quadruped on a long box. So often when we have the box on the carriage, and then we'll get people kneeling on the box at some point and doing bird dogs, like reaching with opposite arm and leg. I'm, I'm not crazy about that one for prenatal women. Uh, obvious, I mean, hopefully, obviously, standing on a BOSU um, or some other kind of wobble board, a, a, a cushion, uh, like a Pilates cushion, a mini stability board, like anything that's not solid and stable. Uh, kneeling even on a high kneel on a BOSU, high kneel on a wobble cushion, high kneel on a whatever, even high kneeling in something like, you know, front rowing, you know, it's not front rowing, call it reverse expansion, right? Mm -hmm. Or arm circles. Um, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, are, are there any other exercises on your list that you would say, you know, fall into that category of like, yeah, probably not a great risk to reward ratio. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this is, this is a little bit more on the gray side, but anything high kneeling with hands and straps, depending yeah. on, depending on who your client is. So like, I'm thinking of even things like chest expansion, high kneeling. Um, we always, speaking of layers, we'll go back to layers. For our prenatal clients who are newer to Pilates, it's a nice idea to start, have the beginner layer with them in low kneeling. Um, and then, you know, for some of your, some of your other clients, they may have been doing this exercise for ages and they want to, the next one, one progression would be to come up to high kneeling. If yeah. I had a, a prenatal client who was also a beginner, I might whisper to her before class and just say, hey, when we do our um, exercises in kneeling, I'd like for you to stay in low kneeling right now. Um, but, you know, there might be like Haley. If Haley was in my class and she was very pregnant and she wanted to do chest expansion and high kneels, I'd be like, you know what, Haley, you got it because I've seen you do it five million times. Um, so, the, you know, in chest expansion on the reformer, you're facing the pulleys which is, it is a balance challenge, especially for our new clients or clients who have balance challenges. But to me, the the most precarious position in high kneeling is high kneeling hands and straps facing the foot bar. Because yeah. what typically happens is when you fall forward, our, in, our natural tendency is to use our hands to catch ourselves. But if you have hands and straps, and you fall forward and you bring your hands down toward the bed, 
you will make the bed go faster underneath you and you will. So I, I had to ask a client for help because I was cursing. I said, you're going to eat shit. And I said, what's another word for eat shit? She's like, face plant. You can face plant people. <laughs> um, uh, and bad things can happen because the foot bars there, the frames there, the spring well is, or the spring bar is there. So that to me is one of the most precarious positions in a high kneeling position. And actually I, I know somebody who didn't have a prenatal client, but a client who pulled the straps way too quickly and she face planted into, in, in towards the foot bar because mm. it is. If you don't know what's happening, if you've never done that before, and you don't know to go slow, you're just going to yeah. yank on those straps. Well, I so, would say, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you on the high kneeling face of the foot bar being the, the most precarious kneeling position. And I would always do a low kneel for pregnant women with that. Um, I also think like what you described there, it is a, a risk for anyone doing it for the first time because it's unexpected. And that that instinct that we have to put our hands out in front of ourselves if we feel we're falling actually makes it worse. Uh, and so I think that is, you know, you can, I always build that into the way I teach the exercise and always set people up in a low kneel. And then I say, okay, so in a minute, not yet, but in a minute, <laughs> okay, we're going to move our arms forward and not yet. But when we do that, the carriage is going to go backwards. So you need to do it slowly. And then when you re release your arms, the carriage is going to go forwards. You need to do that slowly. So stay with your bum on your heels and nice and slowly, slowly raise your arms forward. Hold it there. Hold it there. Nice and slow. Slowly return your arms to your hips. All right, let's do a few more of those. And then, okay, get, a, get some confidence with that and go, okay, if you're feeling like this is strong, just keep doing this. If you want to challenge your balance and strength a little bit more here, okay, in a minute, not yet, I'm going to get you to come up to a high kneel. Okay, all right. So if you're ready, come up to a high kneel. Don't move your arms. All right. When we move our arms, not yet, but when we do move our arms, the carriage is going to go away backwards. So you have to move very slowly. If you get in trouble here, your instinct is to put your arms out in front of and save yourself. That's actually going to make it worse. So if you feel precarious, what you need to do is sit down. If you feel precarious, what do you need to do? Good. Sit down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so very slowly, very slowly, reach your arms slowly forwards. Okay, hold here. That's really good. You guys are doing great. If you, if you need to, you can sit down anytime. Okay, and slowly, slowly, Bring your arms back to your hips. Hey, you're doing it. That's awesome. Look at you go. Keep going slow. Okay, do another four. Bam. So yeah, so that's how I would, that's how I would teach or something like that is how I would teach that exercise. A plus. I loved how you use your voice, voice tones and your pace to take your um, your clients on on a journey. Nice job, Ra. Uh, it took me back. All right. So um, so if we simply program our class with no prone and no supine, we can teach a class that's going to be 98% pregnancy friendly. And then if we also omit any exercises that are standing or basically with two or fewer points of contact on something wobbly, then we 
So basically, keep always three points of contact if you're on something wobbly, or even better, don't do wobbly, don't go on wobbly things. Um, we're 100% good to go. Well, no, there are two more guidelines, aren't there? But those are those are pretty – I think number three is basically like, yeah, we don't really need to worry about that too much in Pilates as a general rule because it's avoid overheating and stay hydrated. And so remember, folks, the ACOG are talking about physical activity. So they're talking about women, you know, going for hikes in the desert, you know, running marathons, doing spin classes. Mm-hmm. In a hot yoga, shed. hot Pilates. Yeah, hot yoga, right. So if you're in an air-conditioned Pilates studio, okay, wearing ex- wearing appropriate exercise clothing, it's like it's virtually impossible for you to overheat, you know, doing exercise. Even very vigorous exercise has been shown not to cause a significant uh, increase in core temperature that's enough to cause any problem in pregnancy. The problem we're worried about here is uh, neural tube uh, defects, in particularly in first trimester, can be caused by overheating. But uh, your core temperature in exercise, as long as you're in a reasonably cool ambient environment, like an air-conditioned Pilates studio, and you've got uh, clothing on that allows you to shed heat, so you're not wearing like you know a parka or a jumper or whatever. Um, you, you know, even exercise, vigorous exercise, doesn't raise your body temperature to anything anywhere near a dangerous level. But if you're exercising in a hot and humid environment where you can't sweat properly, where you sweat but doesn't doesn't help you cool off, or where you don't, where you have clothing on, uh, so much clothing on that you can't shed the heat that's where the the concern and the risk comes in. So this is like literally like no hot Pilates, no Pilates in a tin shed in summer if your air conditioning's broken, you know, that kind you know, no Pilates whilst wearing, you know, an overcoat. Um <laughs> but if you're just doing like what I imagine like ninety nine point nine percent of people do, which is like Pilates in an air conditioned studio, <laughs> like, you're totally fine with this one. Yeah. Well, and it just it it um we can jump ahead real quick in talking about the you know staying cool and hydrated. Have you know remind your client that if at any point they she needs to take a break to drink water or cool down a little bit, then you should empower her to do that. Um, but you know the last ACOG guideline is comfort. So very likely, if you're working in a studio setting, she's not going to overheat. But maybe it's a nice thing to do for comfort to have her be at the reformer by the fan or be at the reformer that's close to an open door or a window. Those are just really nice comfort considerations for for your prenatal client. Right. And so let's talk about so let's let's talk about comfort because I think this is one where there like you said at the start, like comfort is very individual, right? And so and also what like you said, as almost kind of like by definition, exercise is not comfortable. Um well, especially when you're doing it right. And and so this and comfort is a subjective experience. So it is up to the woman to decide whether she's sufficiently comfortable, right? So it might be that some women are totally fine with being very sweaty and red-faced and having burning muscles and all and that's and that's all of that is perfectly safe there's no reason not to uh, experience those things if the woman's okay with it right? if she's comfortable with it 
Um, and there are other women that don't enjoy those sensations, particularly a- as they get further into their pregnancy and they, they feel just physically you know, uncomfortable in their body. And it's like, no, I don't want to do the roll up and I don't want to do a full plank and, you know, um, and I don't want to get all red faced and sweaty. Um, and so that just becomes a purely individual decision. And so the mandate for comfort is not there. Like all pregnant women must experience no physical discomfort at any time. It's just like, well, whatever your client prefers slash is willing to tolerate, that's fine. Absolutely. No. And that was one of the things that, um, you know, when I was looking at these websites that were talking about prenatal Pilates, also known as Pilates, um, there was so much language around gentle and calm. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't, I don't get these a lot, but I, I've worked with a couple of people who were uh, Olympic athletes, like massively strong, athletic, professional women who have children. And I think to myself, I doubt that when they were pregnant, they wanted gentle, stretchy Pilates. Like they probably wanted to get their ass whooped. Um, and, and you know, it's safe. But yeah, there's so much language around like, be gentle and be safe and, you know, like don't overdo it. And I, I agree with you. And I don't see, there is no contraindication to pregnant uh, women pushing themselves in a reasonable way with most exercise and physical activity. Well, there are, there are studies, and these are quoted in the ACOG guidelines, actually, uh, on women, uh, ath- like elite athletes, uh, when they're pregnant, uh, working it up to 90% of their maximum heart rate in third trimester and found it was safe. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, like anything you're going to do on a reformer in terms of levels of exertion is going to be safe. Um, it's just a matter of like, okay, is 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 this woman, you know, interested in getting to 90% of her maximum heart rate? You know, for most women, the answer is probably not. <laughs> but for those women who are, it's like, well, great, you know, go for it. It's so it really is really subjective. You know, when I was when I was pregnant, I felt like my whole body was splitting apart and it, it took everything for me to just go for a walk because I just was hurting all the time. And then, you know, I work with I work with people who have been pregnant who are doing Pilates, like Pilates that everybody else is doing. They're doing Pilates up until the time they give birth, Haley Hawkins. And what you said before about, uh, you know, gentle, everything should be gentle, slow, soft, you know, supported, more bolsters equals better. Um, and for some women, yeah, they want, they if that's what, if they like feel like, no, I just normally, I love doing the roll up, but I freaking hate it right now. It's like, great, don't do the roll up, you know, let's, or, or let's bolster you, you put you know, five bolsters behind you. So you're doing a, a quarter roll up or something, you know, whatever, you know, so that you can go, oh yeah, that's kind of fun. I kind of enjoy that. Um, so yeah, so comfort is a consideration, but it's really a consideration of personal consideration of like, what is that woman? Yeah. You know, what does that woman want to, or slash, is she willing to tolerate in the way of discomfort, um, during, during the session? Uh, and I think in terms when it comes to the, the, the sort of the gentle aspect that 
one of the things that ACOG says, and this is also echoed in the ACSM guidelines, is that exercise intensity in pregnancy should be determined based on the woman's fitness and prior exercise experience. Right. So somebody who's fit and strong can do more advanced moves. It's like, well, kind of like, duh, that's kind of obvious. But, um, and it's not different for pregnant women. So if you've got somebody who's been practicing regularly or someone who's like a crossfitter or someone who's an athlete of some kind and they've never done Pilates before, but they're super freaking strong. Right, and they come to their first Pilates class. You don't have to keep them doing pelvic clocks for the first six weeks. You know, like <laughs> they can they can do push ups, they can do lunges and squats, they can you know they can do side planks, they can you know they can do arm work on a you know a heavyish spring that's like they where the veins stand out in their forehead. Like you know they can do all of that if they want to do it. You know they don't have to do it. Um, and so I think that, you know, that is a that is a key recommendation. I think almost always gets lost in translation from the guidelines to uh, most um, Pilates and indeed fitness classes is, is thinking that pregnancy in and of itself determines that we should exercise gently. Where in reality, what all of the guidelines say is exercise intensity in pregnancy should be determined by the woman's actual level of fitness. You know, if someone's pregnant and they're a beginner and they're deconditioned, they should do gentle workouts. If they're pregnant and they're like strong and flexible, they should do advanced workouts or they can do advanced workouts if they want to. Um, and it's like, okay, we'll take out the pregnant bit. Okay. And just, it's the same, right? If somebody's a beginner and they're deconditioned, even if they're not pregnant, right, they should do a gentle, gentle workout. Okay. And if they're advanced and strong and flexible, even if they're not pregnant, they can do advanced workouts. So it's like it's like the fact that they're pregnant is neither here nor there to choosing. It's not germane to choosing exercise intensity. It's the level of fitness is the main thing, and then comfort, right? So, super CrossFit mum, if she wants to do advanced Pilates moves, great, go for it, right? If she doesn't want to, she doesn't have to. She can lie back on a bolster and breathe if she wants, but. We we shouldn't be the ones telling her, no, you can't do that. It's not safe. When you were originally trained, Raf, did you have the same, um, I don't want to use the word guideline, but I was, I'll just say what I, I learned. I learned in my first training that pregnancy is not the time to start exercising if you haven't been exercising before. Yeah. And I feel like in the, in the ACOG paper, they actually refute that in very, in no uncertain terms. Like if you haven't start, if you're pregnant and you haven't started exercising, you better start exercising because it takes so much effort to give birth and then to raise a baby. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was taught that. Uh, I was taught if you haven't exercised or you haven't been doing Pilates before pregnancy, you shouldn't start in pregnancy. But if you've been doing Pilates, it's okay to continue doing what you're doing, but just more gently. Uh, whereas that is, turns out to be not actually in line with current uh, best practice. So I'm just going to read you from the ACOG guidelines here. Um, uh, this is page uh, one um, of the ACOG committee opinion uh, 2021. 
physical activity and exercise during pregnancy in the postpartum period. Uh, quote, women with uncomplicated pregnancies should be encouraged to engage in aerobic and strength and conditioning exercises before, during, and after pregnancy. End quote. So, I mean, I think that's like, <laughs> it doesn't get much more unequivocal than that. Um, uh, it also, they also go on to say, um, that pregnancy is the ideal time to adopt more healthy lifestyle habits, including regular exercise. Like they literally specifically say, if you're pregnant, now's a good time to start exercising. So yeah, that's that's not a thing. Well, we could uh, and we could say that, and and here's the thing, we can say that for literally any health condition. Like if you read the ACSM guidelines for exercise and testing prescription, which I know you have, uh, or if you read like really any guidelines on exercise for special populations, whether it's cancer, osteoporosis, right. Parkinson's disease, low back pain, high blood pressure, heart failure, stroke lymphedema like pick your condition right the the one of the first things the guideline says is these people should get moving and they should move as often as possible as much as possible right it's like if you've got stage four cancer now's a great time to start exercising because it'll improve your quality and possibly your quantity of life right it's there is no such thing as a human who should not exercise. Everyone That's should right. exercise. Nobody gets a hall pass on this one. If you don't move, you can't move. Everyone. And and doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've left it without doing it, how ill you are, like everybody can benefit from exercise. Everybody can benefit. Like there's there's literally I'm not aware of a single study showing that going from being sedentary to doing some exercise makes any health com- outcome worse. Like it, I just don't think it is a thing. So yeah, so I, I, our default should always be that exercise is going to be safe and beneficial. Now, of course, there's such a thing as when you take it to extremes, it's like, okay, is running like 200 miles a week going to make you healthier than running 50 miles a week? Probably not, <laughs> right? you know? If you work out in the gym four hours a day, six days a week, is that really healthy? I don't know. Probably that's a little bit excessive, you know? So yes, of course, there are extreme cases where more is not always better, but I think for 99.999% of people who are sedentary, like going from doing nothing, like the more, the better, basically, you know, you know, and yeah. So, um, I think that, uh, we as movement professionals, really, I mean, we must wholeheartedly embrace the the notion that exercise is the closest thing that humanity knows to the the fountain of youth and the the panacea of wellness. And, you know, whilst it's certainly not perfect, it is the best thing that we currently can do, you know, for our health and well-being and longevity and this is everyone should exercise everyone 
should exercise. And like, if you don't wholeheartedly believe that, like, you know, you need to go educate yourself because <laughs> in this profession, like that's the business we're in is we're in the business of helping people exercise. And there's nobody who can't benefit from that. What do you say to the listeners who are who have been told that for prenatal clients they have to be careful of overstretching or uh, curling up because of um, diastasis? Uh, so for the overstretching thing, um, uh, that comes from the idea of relaxin, the hormone that's released in pregnancy, which uh, its main function is to uh, relax ligaments uh, around the pelvis but also relaxes ligaments everywhere in the body it's a hormone so it relax it it uh it acts throughout the body it doesn't just act on the pelvis uh and so women do become more flexible during pregnancy because their ligaments and all of their connective tissue in fact it's not just ligaments it's connective tissue of which basically almost all of your body is made like so all of your tendons are connective tissue your muscles are sheathed in connective tissue like basically all of parts of your movement system are made of connective tissue so all of the parts of your you know muscles tendons ligaments you know even your bones are actually connective tissue um all of the parts of your motor system become more pliable during pregnancy uh and it's thought that the main purpose of relaxing is to relax the pelvic joints in order to give birth and i guess possibly also to just relax the abdominal wall and things in order to expand during pregnancy um and so that's a normal physiological part of pregnancy uh and also uh many women experience lumbopelvic pain during pregnancy so pain in the sacroiliac joint or the symphysis pubis or the low back or some combination and particularly that can be aggravated by doing like deep lunges sometimes or deep side splits particularly under load so if doing like side splits on a reformer or something which we've just agreed you probably shouldn't be doing anyway um just because of the balance um side of things but just you know if you were doing some kind of deep stretch and you got pain in your symphysis pubis for example that's more common during pregnancy than outside of pregnancy um uh, and for a long time we thought that these two facts were related you know the fact that you get relaxing it relaxes your ligaments and then also people get more pain in their symphysis pubis and and sacroiliac joint during pregnancy but it turns out that there's a very poor to non-existent relationship between relaxing levels and uh and pain in pregnancy um so it turns out that uh women also who are pregnant also have more pain so they have more more symphysis pubis pain, more sacroiliac joint pain during pregnancy. They also have more low back pain. They also are more sensitive to heat and cold, and they're more sensitive to being pricked with a pin on their upper back, uh, and they're more sensitive to being pinched and poked and having you know like so. Basically, women have a, an increased pain sensitivity during pregnancy, which kind of makes sense. Like if you think about protecting the the mother and and the unborn child, uh, and so just. If things uh, things that are normally not painful can become painful, and things that are normally painful can become more painful during pregnancy. So, uh, but that's not related to relaxing. And so, yeah, there's been a bunch of studies out on pelvic stability and looking at the movement of the sacroiliac joint and stuff in women after they give birth and sort of doing X-rays of them and looking at the movement of the joint and the movement of the sacroiliac joint is not different between women who have pain and women who don't have pain. 
Um, and so uh, whilst pelvic pain is a real thing during pregnancy and relaxin is also a real thing, they just don't seem to be related. So um, uh, it's normal to, to become more flexible during pregnancy. In fact, the ACSM and ACOG both recommend regular stretching during pregnancy um, as part of a healthy exercise routine. Uh, and there are zero uh, cautions in either of those guidelines about, you know, quote, overstretching, end quote, which is, you know, it's it's not part of the guideline. So, um, you know, if a, if a woman came to me, to my class, and she was six months pregnant, and she was like, oh, you know, when we do side splits, even if we do it like on a heavy spring or if I'm using a pole to balance or whatever, like I'm getting symphysis pubis pain, like I would just do the exact same thing that I would do if, say, a 25-year-old man came into my class who was a footballer and he had, say, osteitis pubis you know, which is a condition where you get pain in your symphysis pubis when you do the splits, right? Uh, and he said, oh, when I do this exercise, I'll get pain. I'll be like, okay, well, why don't we reduce your range of motion and see if that helps, you know? And that's the exact same thing I would do with a pregnant woman. It's like, well, the fact that she's pregnant is not germane here. It's just like, okay, she's got pain in this movement, so let's adjust the movement until it's not painful. <laughs> right, um, which is what we would do, do to anybody. Movement. Yeah, yeah, just what you do for anybody, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's the pregnancy and, and and stretching thing, and then the diastasis thing. Uh, diastasis is completely normal in pregnancy. Some, there's some studies showing 100 percent of women have it by week 40 or 36 or something. Um, it's a separation of the abdominal wall, and for most women, about two thirds of women, it goes away all by itself within a year postpartum, and for one third of women, it doesn't go away all by itself within a year of postpartum. Uh, and for those women for whom it doesn't go away, um, exercise can't fix it, or it doesn't seem that exercise can fix it. Like we've, we don't have any evidence that exercise can fix it. We've got some studies showing that exercise doesn't fix it. Um, but we do, we have precisely zero studies showing exercise makes it worse. There's literally like, I would say there's like a hundred plus studies on, uh, ab curls and diastasis and not one single woman in one single study, their diastasis got worse. Some of the women, their diastasis got better. Many of the women, their diastasis did not get better. Um, so I would say what we know about uh, ab curls and diastasis at the moment, uh, I say we can say with a pretty high degree of confidence that ab curls don't cause or exacerbate diastasis. We can say with a moderate degree of confidence that ab curls don't fix diastasis. Uh, and we can probably say with a moderate degree of confidence that ab curls before and during pregnancy are protective against diastasis. So uh, overall, I would say the, the balance of, you know, the risk of not doing ab curls versus the risk of doing ab curls, it's riskier to not do them. Uh, and yeah, and we'll, we'll link to some literature. There've been a couple of uh, randomized controlled trials in the last uh, couple of years, in the last year, even six months that have come out on this and I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes. Um, but yeah, so ab curls are safe. Uh, you know, are they comfortable? Well, possibly not for a lot of women. <laughs> do you have to do them? No. <laughs> um, but do you have to avoid them like they're going to, you know, do some damage? No, you don't. They're, they're, they're safe. Can we put this to bed now? Prenatal Pilates is just Pilates? I think we can put it down for a nap. <laughs> okay. Maybe a nap on the sofa. There we go. 
but lying on your side. Prenatal Pilates, otherwise known as just Pilates, where you just happen to not do any supinal prone or balance on any wobbly things. Yeah. Bam. No supine, no prone, no balance challenges. Easy. Do side lying, do kneeling, do standing, do sitting. Do, yeah. Those are all great, fine positions. And you just do any, literally any exercise in any of those positions apart from balancing on wobbly things. And there's your class. It's totally prenatal friendly, but it's it's not like special for prenatal. It's just like it's a class that happens to be fine for prenatal women. Also fine for anyone else. For everybody. For everybody. Yeah. Nice one. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.